Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Happy, what is it, the 2nd of April today? That's it. April 2nd, 2018. April 2nd, 2018. It's um, the day after Easter, or as we refer to it, Resurrection Sunday. That's it. Yep, and we want to touch base and um, just share a little bit about what's going on. Uh, and the thing that's most pressing right now is the resurrection. Uh, you know, millions of Christians around the world this weekend we celebrated the most significant event in human history. And if we think about it, putting a man on the moon or, uh, you know, the first president of the United States and this nation being born, or a nuclear war, or any any of these other events would pale in comparison to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, because it literally is the most significant event in the history of the world. Imagine the Son of God himself coming down, wrapping himself in human flesh, and dying a criminal's death for us. It's a phenomenal event, and it's something that here 2,000 years later, it's still as fresh as it was when it happened. And so we want to talk a little bit about that. Um, Talk about the reason we have faith, the reason why we're, we're Christians um, at all, you know, and, and talk about this event. So Paul, Paul said that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Everything that we're talking about here, we might as well just hang it up, uh, turn the phone off right now, and go home because there's no hope. But thank God that he really did rise from the dead, and we're living in that reality now. So what do you have, brother? Man, I just would like to kind of talk about a couple things real quick, directly uh, attesting to the validity of Christ dying for us and then being risen from the dead. Um, some people try to actually say that it's a bunch of craziness, crazy talk, someone was risen from the dead or raised from the dead, that that's impossible. Well, I'd like to challenge some thinking today. Because um, if we think about it, for a group of men, 12 men, the apostles, to literally lay their life down for a supposed lie. I mean, that's what the modern society tries to say. It was a lie. But if we try to say that these 12 individuals suffered, they were beaten, many of them were stoned, some of them were boiled alive, crucified, some of them crucified upside down, beheaded, wow. beaten with a cat of nine tails. And anyone who's researched the, the uh, extreme, you know, torture that that is knows that when you are given that 39 lashes, you literally are taking from one, basically from one lash of your life. Yeah. So, and you're yeah. left in such a grotesque form that most people have a hard time seeing what's going on. I mean, I mean, it, you don't even look the same when they're done beating you with a cat of nine tails. Wow. So you're telling me that 12 men would risk torture, execution, excruciating pain over and over and over again for a lie. Wow. That makes no sense. Um, yeah. I don't remember the official's name, but there was a gentleman that was a part of the Watergate scandal with, through Nixon. Uh, my pastor was talking about it on Sunday, and he said that the thing that attested to him the most about the validity of Christ 
you know, dying and being risen again was the fact that the 12 disciples went through all the torture, pain, and death, standing up for what they believed in, never giving once into it. However, the 12 individuals that were a part of the Watergate scandal couldn't even last 12 days in a lie. Wow. Powerful. So if they can't even last a couple days for something that's not even life-changing, how is it that we want to discount these 12 men that they were giving up everything for Christ? Literally. I'm gonna there, I'm gonna add. They, they gave up everything. They, they, they took this. If this was a lie, which we know it wasn't, but if it was a lie, they took it to their grave. And so, you know, one of the things that we look at is the men who wrote. If we're looking at John, for example, and we look at the Book of John, he was an eyewitness of what happened. And one of the things that my pastor brought up this uh, this weekend was, you know, in a court of law. If you're the prosecution or you're the defense, the most powerful tool in your arsenal that you can have is an eyewitness to the event. That trumps a lot of other stuff. Having an eyewitness is a powerful testament as to what happened. And here we are. We're not talking to someone who heard something from somebody else, you know, through the grapevine. We're talking, we're, we're listening to the testimony of someone who actually physically with their own two saw what happened that day. And if you look at Peter, later on in, in his epistle, he writes that we didn't follow cleverly devised fables. You know, these are not, it's not Greek mythology, but we were eyewitnesses to what happened. And in Christ, after he was resurrected, the Bible says that he was seen at one time by up to 500 people at once. And when Paul was writing that, a lot of those people were still alive. So we have people who were contemporaries of Christ, people who actually walked with Christ, saw the miracles, eyewitnesses jotting down what they saw. So we know that their testimony is true. And then we have people who who were not even um, believers. They were, they were Gentiles who actually came to faith in Christ. There you go. And so you, you see that this, this huge and a movement that swept across the world. Not only that, but people want to discount the Bible as a whole and say that it's, it's a bunch of, like you said, a bunch of fooey, a bunch of nonsense. But if God well, wanted to speak, if he wanted to speak, and he wanted to get his word out, I would assume that his word would be the number one bestseller in, in the history of the world. And that it is. The Bible is by far the number one bestseller in the history of the world. It's a book that's been more scrutinized than any, any other book. And to this day, it stands the test of time. Go ahead, bro. You know, it's, it's amazing to me because people still want to try to devalidate the Word of God. They keep trying to say, well, no, how do you know it's true? How do you know it's real? Well, we'll find one or two manuscripts of William Shakespeare and say, oh, that was, that was written by Shakespeare. That is it. That was the real deal. We know for a fact that it was penned by his hand. Yet there is over 15,000 fragments from 500 different texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, these are verifiable, that these were from the time period. They all work hand-in-hand together. They're not contradictory. And yet, 
there is no other document on this planet that has that many historical documents that back it up. And like you talked about in a court of law, if you have no direct witness that you can speak to, what do you do? You go to your most compelling evidence or the most substantial evidence available. Well, the most substantial evidence available, number one, would be our Dead Sea Scrolls. There is no other form of documentation that historically documents anything. Not even the Romans have that many documents that prove that they exist. Yeah. So how is it that we want to continuously devalidate something that is so historically relevant? I think it goes back to the very fact that people don't like truth. Hey, that's, that's what I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, think I'm about it. it. How do you feel when your wife tells you something you don't want to hear? You know it's true, but she's telling yeah. you something that you really don't want to hear. You get pretty defensive, don't you? I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'll just be honest. I mean, when my wife tells me something that I don't want to hear, and even if it can be as true as I am standing there before her, if it's not something I want to hear, I will try to make excuses, and I will sometimes catch myself doing it. Uh, I think there's something that I purposely do. It's almost subcon. It's almost subconscious. It's like I'm trying to justify the way I want to think, and so I try to validate my view through refuting what she's saying. Go ahead. Yeah, no, there's something very uh, profound in what you're saying. I think what you're really saying is we're asking the wrong question. Those who are asking if, if the veracity of the Bible, if the Bible is true or not, if Jesus really did die and, and rise from the dead, that has been debated and deliberated for literally centuries. The question isn't whether he did, but the question is what are we going to do with it? That's it. And when truth smacks us in the face, it demands an answer. It demands right. an answer. When Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, you know, in and, and that scripture, a lot, of, a lot of the people who were following him said, I, this is a hard saying. I can't, I can't follow this guy anymore. He's the bread of, bread of heaven. What, what does that mean? But if you look at it, he said, he comes back and he says, is this hard for you? But what if you see the Son of Man rise back up to where he was before, ascend back to heaven where he was before? It's either he was, he was, a lunatic, or he was in fact who he said he was, the Son of God. And so that's really the truth that we have to grapple with. You know, and what, what man wants to do a lot of times is, like you were saying with your wife confronting you with some truth, we want to justify, we want to cover, we want to develop all these clever ways to try to cover up the truth. But the truth is, the truth will stand regardless of what man comes up with. And there's been a lot of stories concocted, but none of them have been able to, to um, to wipe out this truth that that is. Jesus Christ was born a virgin birth, he lived a sinless life, and he died a sinner's death and then was resurrected. And there's more historical backing for these facts than probably any event in human history. That's right. I mean, if we want to continuously debate this topic instead of looking at the truth that's there, all we're doing is pacifying ourselves. And like you said, we're avoiding the truth. It doesn't matter if you continuously throw your socks and underwear on the floor and your wife gets mad at you. 
and you try to justify what you're doing or if you're not washing the dishes because she's cooked and it really bothers her that you're not pitching in or that you don't carry the trash out without being told or whatever the issue could be if you continuously try to avoid it you're not fixing the problem you're just you're, you're in a state of a denial so why don't we start being proactive and addressing the issue which is where do I truly stand on this am I going to say yes or am I going to deny versus simply trying to say it doesn't exist I mean there's more proof that it does than anything you know there's, there's two things that are very clear from the, our conversation so far two things number one um, it sounds like, brother, your wife's been getting on you about picking up some uh, some clothes around the house. Well, actually not. Uh, that's not one of the issues that I've got. I was just trying to find some common common ground. Yeah. I know that I know some people uh, that have that issue. I won't call them out on on our podcast, I'll, but that's I'll not totally one of mine. kidding. But the second one is that Jesus Christ indeed rose from the dead. He he rose from the dead, and that truth is what splits time. You know, before they want to get politically correct, there used to be, it was B.C. and there was A.D. It was before Christ and it was after death. And literally his, his birth separated time. It's the most, literally all of our, our Western societies built on the foundations of Christianity. Uh, the people who, who established our societies they recognize the importance of this event, and they split time based off of it. It's the most significant event in human history. The question is, what does it mean to us personally? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He makes himself singularly the only way to the Father. I mean, that's a bold statement. That's the reason why the Jews picked up stones to, to kill him. They knew what he was saying. He was claiming, in fact, to be God himself, to be the son of God. They knew what he was saying. And so what happens is it's either viscerally, at least they were honest, at least they honestly didn't believe that he was who he said he was. But they didn't, they didn't argue the fact that he said that. No, they knew what he was saying. Right now, a modern man wants to argue the fact, well, did he actually say that? He actually did say it. And because his message wasn't politically correct, they crucified him. It's a hard truth, right. but it's nonetheless. Well, see, that, crucif that crucifixion was not for nothing. And I think that's the most important thing. Christ knew he was going to die. Jesus knew that he was going to lay his life down. That was not even debatable for him. Yeah. You know, when he would go into his quiet time with the Lord, God would reveal things to him, and he even shared with his disciples, the time is coming when I must die, and you will be alone. So he knew his time was coming. It was written on the wall before him. But he also knew that if he laid himself down, because he had kept himself pure, going through all things, all temptations, all tribulations that every other man has had to go through on this earth, that at that point, he was the perfect sacrifice 
that cover the sin of the earth. Now, to be a partaker of that, you have to accept him as Christ and Savior. You have to acknowledge that he died and was risen again on that third day. I mean, it's just like we pray every every time we wrap up one of these uh, conversations. You know, it talks about Romans uh, 10.9 that you must confess with your mouth and that he is Lord and then believe in your heart that God that he died and that God raised him from the dead and that you'll be saved. So when you do that, you put your faith in alignment, qualifying yourself to be a part of that redemption blood. The blood itself is what purifies and cleanses and washes away the sin, the separation from God. So what we have to decide is do we want to be a part of that or do we not? Do we wish to be redeemed or do we wish to be rejected? But see, the rejection is not because he's rejected us. It's because we have rejected him. It all comes back to us. Free will. He's not going to force us. Yeah, he's not going to force us into salvation. He's not going to force us to be redeemed. Think about even when you look at Ruth and Naomi. It is a perfect picture of what Christ did for the church because I believe Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. And when Ruth brought, you know, came in with Naomi back into Israel, Ruth came and began to reap in Boaz's field, and Boaz took her as his wife, redeeming her so that she would not be lost. Ruth being a Gentile. Naomi being a Jew, what better and more perfect picture of Christ burying the Gentile church at the same time redeeming his people, the children of Israel, and also blessing his children through the Gentiles? Because Boaz sent a gift back with Ruth back to Naomi. I mean, redemption is throughout the world. Yes, yes. You know, one of the things that you said, brother, was uh, you mentioned free will. And you're talking about the fact that it's our free will. We, it's not him rejecting us. It'd be us rejecting him. One of the things that, on the flip side of that, that's so powerful is that Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, but I freely lay it down, because he's been given the authority right. to have his life or to take it back up. And so it's not just our free will towards God, but it's Christ's free will towards us that he says, I willingly do this thing, because it was, why? Because for God so loved the world, and that so loved, it's a, it's a quality. It's the type of love. It's the depth of his love. He's so loved, you know, in such a way that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's it. That's it. I think you hit hit the nail on the head by referring to Christ's free will. Because think about it. If Christ did not freely give himself up for us, he really would not have gone through all of the temptations and all of the tribulations that we do. He had to freely choose to give as man. 
being God, he had, as man, had to freely choose to give up his own life. So, just like you said, free will is everything. It was free will of Jesus to do the will of the Father, and it's our free will that allows us to either choose or to reject salvation. Amen. Amen. So what happens is now the ball's in our court, or to the listener, the ball's in your court. God has done everything that he's going to do. God has done everything he's going to do. He not only set the rules, he played by his own rules. He gave himself as a sacrifice, stretched out his arms, and showed the magnitude of his love towards us. So the question is not whether he did it or how do we know he did it. We know he did it. What's our response now to that? How do we respond? Yes, I'll receive him. Yes, I believe what you did was was for me, in my place, taking a punishment that I deserve? Or do we choose to reject that? You know, the Bible says in Hebrews that if we reject at that point, there's no more sacrifice for sin. He's not coming back again to do it again. We have an opportunity here of a lifetime. You know, it's not, it wouldn't be us, for example, missing out on a great opportunity to make a million dollars. Oh, if I just had invested at that time, I would have made a million dollars in the stock market or invested in Microsoft or, oh, I blew it. It's a mistake of my lifetime. No, this would be the mistake of eternity to turn away such great a love. He reached down and said, you know what? I'm going to die for Jim. I'm going to die for for Jesus. I'm going to die for Kirk. I'm going to die for Andre. And if we turn from that, there remains no other sacrifice. What we need to do is embrace that. He's come to give us life and to give us life more abundantly. I mean to the full, overflowing, to the brim. That's it. What do you have? Man, I think at this point, we're at a point where we could wrap this thing up. And, uh, guys, we want to make sure that you always have the opportunity to you know, accept the Lord as your Lord and Savior. So if you guys would like at this time to do so, just just follow this prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, for re- your salvation. Lord, I just receive you as Lord and Savior. I ask you to come and live in my heart. Lord, just like your word says, I confess you as Lord and Savior. I believe that, Jesus, you died and that, God rose you again from the dead on the third day, and I receive you as my Savior. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Let me be fresh in you before you. Clean me, make me white as snow, and lead me in all truth. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.